Well, good morning. It is good to see you all this morning, and the fact that you can hear me is a modern miracle. Uh, (laughs) This morning I came in, and there was a number of people. We don't often say much about what happens behind you all, uh, because they want to stay in the shadows, so don't turn around and look at them, but uh, know that they're there. Uh, this morning, they, I walk in and they say, we have some things going on uh, that's kind of unique. And I said, what are those? They go, oh, we don't have any house speakers. I'm like, oh, that's nice. So I get to yell all day. But uh, as time went on and crew came in and helped us get it going, and so to the men in the back and the crew that came in to help figure it out, thank you very much. We praise the Lord for you. Uh, We can't say enough. They are the unsung heroes on every Sunday morning, every event that we have, those people who sit in the back, the men and the women who sit in the back in the sound booth, making sure that you have the live stream working, making sure that you can hear Uh, all of those details coming together, we praise the Lord for them. And uh, this morning was one of those where they had to come in, step up, and uh, step into a role that they normally would not be in uh, because they're trying to get things working. And so we praise the Lord for them. If you take your Bibles this morning and turn to First Thessalonians, that is where we will be together as we spend time in the Word of God together this morning. As we do so, and as you're turning there, it is uh, important for us to Again, be mindful, as Mike said a moment ago, uh, it's important that uh, you be here if possible for our congregational meeting, important matters there to discuss, and, and also uh, thrilling matters to discuss because we recognize that God has provided us abounding provision in our resources, and we are thankful for that. And so we're going to be praising the Lord. We're also going to be uh, discussing some of the plans for the future as far as the boiler and the debt reduction and all of that that is concerned. So be here if possible. When we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we are working our way through this book, and we've taken a couple weeks off for various reasons. And now that we're returning here, it is important for us to continue to ask the question, what does God want out of His church? What is it that the church should be doing? And there's all kinds of ideas on that. In fact, libraries could be filled with the volumes that are written on church growth, church planning, church process, and the most successful church, fill in the blank, does this. We live in an age where the church is trying cutting edge new things and they're trying to add elements in and pretty soon, not all of those are bad, but pretty soon we start to water down what we are about. But the Thessalonian church did not do that. They were not those who watered down or in any way would distort what God wanted. And so it is them that we return to, to understand what it is that God wants from us as a church. We can, we can appeal to the masses. We can appeal to the sacred few. Or we could appeal to what God wants us to do. And that is where we want to be found this morning. And as I thought of this passage in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, as we draw this chapter to a close this morning, I was mindful of the faithful reputation of the church, which involves the faithfulness of each and every individual. And too often we are like the young man who, in his love letter to his love interest, wrote this. He pours his heart out in devotion. He writes, I love you so much. By the way, this is not mine. 
I'm borrowing this from somebody else, just in case you're wondering. I love you so much that I would climb the highest mountain, swim the widest streams, cross the burning desert, die at the stake for you. By the way, I'll see you on Saturday if it doesn't rain. That is all too often what we are. Passionate on fire? Oh, wait, it might rain? I'll see you on Sunday then. That is often what we see in the church. That's often what we see in church growth ideas is as soon as they are tested by fire, oh, let's go the other way. But it is also true of the individual believer who's passionate on fire, excited about ministry, excited about certain elements of ministry, excited about their church, and then pressures come. What we find in the Thessalonian church is a testimony, and our central idea is this, the testimony of the Thessalonian church should help us define what God views as a successful church fellowship. We want to be successful in God's eyes. We want to be those who are faithful and diligent as believers in the body of Christ to what God has called us to do, and the Thessalonian church provides for us that example. And so it is there that we're going to spend time this morning digging into and dissecting the last portion of Paul's praise of thanksgiving for the Thessalonian believers. The text says this, and we'll ask the Lord's blessing in our time in his word. The text beginning in verse 9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious heavenly Father, we have just sung the modern song that focuses our attention perfectly upon this text. Lord, we praise you that we have Christ, that our hope is Christ, that our future is Christ, that our present is Christ. Lord, we look into the church in Thessalonica this morning after having sung those words that we just sang together, and now we look into this church in Thessalonica and we see the characteristics of that modern song being played out in an ancient church. We see them faithful. We see them diligent, but not because of their own strength, not because of their circumstances, but because of Christ who is our only hope. Lord, we praise you that our hope is different than those who do not know Christ and that our future is secure and steadfast. So, Lord, as we dig into the text that is before us today, I ask your blessing upon your servants who are gathered here today and listening online, that we'd be diligent hearts following after you, obedient after you, that you would allow us to put into practice what we observe in the Thessalonian church, that your spirit would convict us in those areas that we need to refine and to reform and cause us to glorify you in our reaction and response to this text. Lord, I pray that you give me the words to speak as well, that they would be from you, and that your name would be glorified in all that is said and done here this morning. And so, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for it, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we dig into the text this morning, we begin with a testimony of salvation, and we're kind of backing up a little bit because 
uh, we recognize that it's been a couple weeks off. So we had family camp, and then we had the Jones family here last week, or Keith Jones with us last week. So it's been a couple weeks since we've been here in First Thessalonians. And so we're going to back up into Paul's prayer. Remember, Paul is praying as we start chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, and in verse 2 he says this, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here Paul draws out for the church in Thessalonica their faith, love, and hope. And he does that as well for other churches, the Corinthian church, for example, that these are three essentials of church dynamic growth. And now he says, as he's closing out the prayer, we've been several verses in prayer where Paul has been highlighting the values, the benefits, and the strength of the church in Thessalonica. And these are all things we should learn. These are all things we should apply at Byron Center Bible Church and and in our own personal lives as we're faithful to the things of the Lord. And so Paul continues in this prayer, and he's speaking specifically of the testimony of the Thessalonian church, and he's praising God for them. The characteristics of this faithful church, we must emulate. We must pattern ourselves to follow if we are to be faithful to God's call for you and I. We can follow the latest church growth movements, and there's some value there, but that's not how you will be judged on the day that you stand before your Savior. That's not how I will be judged as your pastor on the day that I meet my Savior. What does God think about Byron Center Bible Church? Is He pleased with our work, or is He displeased because of something that stands in the way? It is important for us to ask this sober self-assessment so that when we do stand before our great God, that we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have done what I've asked you to do. You haven't followed after the whims of the world. You haven't followed after selfish ambitions and desires. You have stayed firm to what I've called you to do. At the end of chapter 1, the church at Thessalonica's ongoing activity draws us in. New trends and church growth tactics are common. So too are traditional, unmoving methods. We've always done it, so we're always going to do it. There's the two sides, and neither one of them are biblical, at least in their entirety. So the question is, do we ask, what does the Lord think of these things? Starting in verse 2, we notice Paul's praise to the Lord for this church. Paul completes his prayerful assessment of the church in verses 9 and 10. He has done an evaluation. He has evaluated their faithfulness. He has understood whether they are following after the Lord or if they are like the Corinthian church where he is presently sitting as he's writing the letter to the Thessalonians who are divided, who are sinful, and who are prideful. That's the Corinthian church. But Paul does not highlight any of those errors in the Thessalonian church. Instead, he's highlighted many of their reasons why God is pleased with this early church. And so Thessalonica, their testimony, their witness, their uh, faith has been evident not only to those who've witnessed it in Macedonia and Achaia, as we saw in verse 8, but now it is everywhere that Paul goes 
he's, instead of telling the people who are there in those places about the faith of the Thessalonians, they're telling him what they've heard about the faith of the Thessalonians. This is a faithful church who loves the Lord. Paul, let me tell you. Paul says, I know I was there. I know them. And so Paul is writing because they have been found faithful. Remember, this church is only a few months old. Up to two years, between a few months and two years old, when Paul is writing back to them, and they have made an impact that is traversing before Paul can traverse. It is going out before Paul can arrive in various places. The testimony of the Thessalonian church is having a significant impact because faith is first. This is a critical point for us because it is a point that the modern American church is missing. Faith must be first. Notice what Paul says as he comes into verse 9. He says, For they themselves, that is, Macedonia and Achaia and everywhere that is, Paul is going, from verse 8, he says, They reported concerning us uh, the kind of reception we had among you. So news is already reaching. It's already arriving before Paul does of how Paul and Silas was treated in Thessalonica and how the church has responded. And now he says, And how you turn to God. How you, Thessalonians, turned to God. The richness of this church's testimony comes from their response to the gospel. Believer, listen carefully. The impact of this church was not because of modern methods that the Thessalonians were trying. It was not because of old traditional habits that they had picked up and kept from Judaism. It was because of their faith in the one true God. It was their faith. We just sang it a moment ago. We just proclaimed it. Now do we believe it? The richness of this church's testimony comes from their response to the gospel. The church of Thessalonica rose out of the pressures of persecution to hold a dynamic testimony of faith. They were not those who lightly held to Christ. They were not those who came onto the scene under the best of circumstances and the richest of circumstances. Remember how they came onto the scene. We studied together in the book of Acts when we started the book of 1 Thessalonians. The church in 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonican church that got started was that which rose out of Paul only being there a couple days, or a couple weeks rather, having gone to the synagogues, having infuriated the Judaizers who drove him out. But they did it directly by going to Jason's house, and all of those who are followers of Paul and Silas were gathered together at Jason's house. They drug them out, having Paul and Silas not being there, and they drug them before the town council. And they find them. Get rid of Paul and Silas. We don't want to see them. Get rid of them. That's how the church starts. Can you imagine that someone bursts into your home, drags you out, and says, if you ever go back to that fellowship, we're going to find you. We're going to hunt you. There's many places in our world today that that is the exact experience they are suffering. But can you imagine that? That's how the church was founded. Not only was it founded, but it grew exponentially so much that not only was it known in Thessalonica, but it was known in all of Macedonia where Thessalonica is the capital city. And it was known in all of Achaia where Corinth was the capital city, a much larger city than Thessalonica. 
and it was known everywhere that Paul traveled because of their dynamic testimony of faith first. They followed God. The order is very, very important. Paul highlights this order for us. And notice again, I want you to see it in the text. He says uh, in the middle of verse 9, and how you turn to God. That's the middle of a sentence. That's one phrase drawn out. That is the key first step. There is a key second step, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But this is the key first step. The order is very important. First, they turn to God. This is, by definition, repentance. They turned and went the other way. The idea of repentance is you're walking one way, you've been instructed that that is the wrong way, and you turn and you walk 180 degrees the other way. That is repentance. That is that they were following after the idols of uh, Mount Olympus, which they were in the shadows of. They would open up their windows every morning to the rising sun and highlighted on the other side, if they looked to the sunrise, they would see the sunrise out one side of the house, they would look to the other side of the house, and there's Mount Olympus, looming large over the bay, snow-capped peak that they could see from their Mediterranean homes. Mount Olympus representing paganism, the pantheon of the Greeks. And it is in that culture that they had been following after the idol's of Mount Olympus, and they turned to follow the true God. We're going to see how Paul draws us out in just a moment, but as he does so, there's a few things we need to know. Before anything else can happen, the very first thing that they or anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life can do and must do is to come to Christ, respond to the gospel. We are enemies whose works intended to be for righteousness, Isaiah says, have no value and that they are filthy rags. Paul says in Romans that we were enemies before Christ. The order is very important. There's nothing that you can do to warrant yourself or to merit yourself to Christ except to receive the free gift that has been offered to you. That Christ died in your place. He took on the penalty that you deserved. And that you are to receive that as a free gift. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death and to give us what Paul is going to highlight next. Paul is saying, you've been going the wrong direction. You've been following after the idols. And, and we make all kinds of idols. In fact, in American culture, and not just in American culture, but I'm going to highlight American culture, in American culture, we have exemplified idols. We have made TV shows looking for more of them. Let us be cautious how easy it is to slip into idol worship and not say, well, I would never worship an idol. If you do not worship the one true God, if you have not accepted Christ as Savior, you are worshiping an idol of some sort. For those who lived in the shadow of Mount Olympus, there was all kinds of figures to show who they were worshiping. Paul is calling them out, but he's not calling them out because of the negativity of them worshiping idols, but because they have turned and followed after the true God. And he's saying this is different. His calling out is a, a benefit because of their faithful service. 
and you and I have the opportunity to watch Emancipation Witnessed. Emancipation Witnessed as the Lord does great things in these. Notice that those who turn to God in the text, he says those whom, or how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their first step was not to throw idols out. Their first step was to turn to God. As they turn to God, they recognize that they abandon a former lifestyle. They abandon a former lifestyle. That is what is the evidence of faith. That is emancipation. We just sang of these things just a moment ago. This is what God does for you and I. Those who turn to God turn from idols. This is separation from the former way of living. And it is hope in the things of the Lord. We are witnessing lives. Anytime you see someone come to Christ, it is not to say, get cleaned up and then come to Christ. You can't do that. You can't clean up to come to Christ. It's not like dinner time where you go to the, wash your hands and come to the table. That's not coming to Christ. Coming to Christ is turning and falling in humble obedience that you can't do anything about your salvation, but he already did. And you accept it as a free gift. Then, through the process of sanctification, after you have your salvation already secured, you turn from idols. And that is what these believers did. They separated. This is a separation that takes place. They turned from idols. And it's a dramatic and observable change. We are witnessing lives set free in this very moment. The bondage of sin and serving of idols was a prison that these believers had been set free from. And it's true emancipation. They've been set free. We just sang those words that Christ has set us free. If you know Christ as Savior, you have participated in this great emancipation. You've been set free from a bondage that is greater than any bondage that any other individual could inflict upon another. Because your sin held you there. The sin of Adam held you there. And you were guilty before a holy and perfect God. But the change that takes place in the lives of these believers, they're going this way, following after idols, they turn and they respond to the gospel that has been presented to them by Paul and Silas. And in their response to the gospel, lives change dramatically. And you better believe that that came with a cost. Can you imagine one day you're walking one, day, one way and the next day you're walking another way and your neighbor says, well, wait a minute, I thought you were going to the temple over here. Instead, you're going to a church? Yesterday, you and I could eat, drink, and be merry out in the backyard, and today, something's changed. What's your problem? What's happened to you? That was the kind of dramatic change that took place, but it was greater than what you and I may experience in our mind's eye. We know that the Judaizers had already brought intense persecution, but now Paul doesn't call out the evidence of their testimony of faith is that they were standing firm against the Judaizers. He says that you turn from idols. The pressure of the neighbors dry, dragging them. Hey, we were worshiping idols. They don't wouldn't put it that way, but hey, we were worshiping Zeus the other day. What's your problem? Don't you worship Zeus anymore? Don't you, don't you follow after the Greek pantheon? What, what is your problem? And you can imagine the social media pages would light up 
You can imagine the attacks, the pressures. The change was dramatic and it was observable. The message of the gospel had penetrated hearts and lives and changed them, reformed them from going one way and they went the other way. And not only were they making an impact that was observable and changeable, but they were also doing, God forbid, the proselytizing. They were telling others about Christ. They were telling others about the change that had happened. And now those who were powers that be in Thessalonica despised them. They hated them for what they were doing. And so not only did you have the pressure from the Judaizers, you had the pressure from uh, the Greek pantheon paganism and the neighbors and the influencers, but you also had the church going out doing what the church is supposed to do, believers going out and reaching others for the sake of Christ, and they too were turning to God away from idols. You can imagine the pressures of the Thessalonican governments and the Thessalonican people who are not in the church pressing down upon them. One author says this, he says, The risen Lord wants us to be like a sounding board, bouncing off the vibrations of the gospel, or like a telecommunication satellite which first receives and then transmits the message. Across the land, all over the nation, people were passing comments about the church at Thessalonica, chatting about their faith in God. That was faithfulness to the Lord. They weren't talking about the latest church growth, church growth tactics. They were talking about their faith. They turned to God from idols. That was the talk that was spreading. These folks did not turn to God because they were disillusioned. Listen carefully because I think we may miss this point. These folks did not turn to God because they were disillusioned with life, nor because they felt that they had suffered enough nor because they were fed up with all that life was throwing their way, nor because they were at the end of their tether and living their life on the flip side. Certainly not. It was the unimpeachable character of the one true God that won them over. Beloved, that is what wins souls to Christ. When you share the gospel with somebody, don't try to bedazzle it. You remember that bedazzle machine? These little things that you would stick to clothes and you could press them into clothes and make them better. Uh, You didn't make them better, by the way. Uh, There are so many people trying to bedazzle faith. There's nothing else to add. These people weren't at their ropes in. Oh, we're going to pull them back from the edge and it's going to be dynamic. And That may have been true in some cases, but that's not why they were saved. They were saved because the unimpeachable character of the one true God who saved them through the death of Christ, His burial, and His resurrection. And He offered to those who were enemies a free gift. They were going the wrong way. And Christ, in His great love for us, while we were yet sinners, died for us. That's the gospel. Nothing less and nothing more. And the church at Thessalonica proclaimed its wonderful truth. And Paul highlights that as the first and foremost reason why God was working through them. We move on to point two, verse nine, continuing. 
they were saved to serve. Beloved, this is a, an important truth for us as well. We need to move somewhat rapidly through verse 9 here, the end of verse 9. It says, And how you turned to God from idols. So they turned, they were going this way, they turned to God away from the idols, and they began to serve the living and true God. Key statements that are made here. They were captivated by the Lord. They were captivated by the Lord. The cost was high, but salvation does not begin when we give up something. Listen carefully. You don't give up something to receive Christ. It begins when we receive something. We receive Christ. And that is precisely what they did. They turned to the living God. He's not dead. He's real. They had been serving dead idols who were false gods. But now they've turned to the real and living God, the true and living God. They turned to a God who is not deceitful. They turned to a God who was living. It would be difficult to overstate the impact that the gospel made on these believers. They went from serving dead idols to serving the living God, from false idols to the true God. The change that came into their lives motivated them to respond as bond servants to Christ. And listen to the a weird, almost oxymoron exchange that takes place. They were set free by Christ to serve Christ, to be bond slaves to Christ. Beloved, you and I who know Christ as Savior have done the same thing. You've been set free from the bondage to sin and set free to be the slave to Christ. That's what Paul just says of them. One so devoted, that is the Thessalonians, one so devoted and dedicated to his master that he wants to be his servant all of his days. He loves the Lord as his master. It is in slavery to Christ that he finds true liberty and true freedom. A paradox, yes, but gloriously true and gloriously wonderful. We recognize the great joy, and we see it throughout the law of Israel in the Old Testament, how one could be a bondservant to a master and then choose to remain there as a bondservant to his master. How far greater is it for you and I to serve the one and true living God? Your heart was designed, created by God for that kind of relationship with your Creator. The world is after all kinds of things to fill the void, and Christians fall into that trap, whether it be toys, whether it be money, whether it be alcohol, whether it be whatever. Fill in the gap. Your heart will not ever be satisfied with them, and there's evidence of it. You can ask Solomon, who tried everything. Your heart will never be filled in those things because your heart was designed, created by God, for a relationship with Him. And when you are a servant, a bondservant of your Savior, and you're holy and faithfully true to that call, there's no greater joy for the servant. These believers, suffering as they were, were captivated by the Lord. And because of that, they were also committed to Christ. Captivated and committed. The bond slave declares by his actions, I have no rights. It is all down to the plan of my master. I have no will except it is one with his. 
This goes against all the modern trends. It goes against your fleshliness. It goes against your selfish ambitions. But one author writes this. He says, Commitment, one word rarely found in Christian speak. It embraces the firm dedication to each other in the family of God. A lifelong embracing a devotion to the Lord Jesus and His great service. A total loyalty and diligence to the local church and her various ministries. Commitment says no to me and yes to Christ. And that's what these believers did. That's what Paul draws out as he's closing his prayer of thanksgiving. He says, you have followed the Lord. You are captivated by the Lord. You are committed to the work of Christ. And one more thing, and I want to spend more time here. One more great truth that we find in this church before Paul's exhortation to them begins in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what he says. The end of verse 9, and how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God, key statements, and to wait for his son. To wait for his son. There was an expectancy in the life of these believers. There was the anticipation that today is not the last day. Today may be the last moment on this earth, but there is more to come. There is a sense of expectancy. They first were waiting for Christ. The final point of Paul's praise is that they diligently and steadfastly longed for the return of Christ. There's an interesting word play, and we kind of miss it because of the way that the verse divisions line up here. Verses 9 and 10, remember as Paul's writing, he's not writing out verse 9 and gets to the end of verse 9 and verse 10 and writes out. The, the divisions of chapter and verse is all for our benefit. It was added after the text. The text is without error. And we sometimes flow from one verse into the next thinking that each verse is separate. But it is not. And here's one evidence that it is not. Because the word that Paul uses for serve is a word that is active. It has present implications. They are actively in the moment serving. Paul uses the same tense and mood when he uses the word wait. Isn't that fascinating? Your job as a Christian is to do two things. Serve and wait. Serve and wait. Faithfully live out the Great Commission and wait. And waiting is not what you do when you're just having nothing to do. This isn't mindless waiting. This is waiting with anticipation. Something good is about to happen. Something wonderful beyond our imagination or fascination is about to take place. We're waiting with anticipation. And we're doing it actively. We're constantly waiting. They turn to the living and true God. They turn from the false dead idols and they wait for the return of Christ who is raised from the dead. That is what they were doing. Let me ask you this. Would that be your testimony? Before we get into it all, what it means to wait, would that be your testimony? 
I could ask the question, but I, I'm not going to ask it with a show of hands. I'll ask the question, how many of us like to wait? We don't like to wait. Evidence of that? A lingering stoplight. Or maybe, better yet, somebody on their phone, now that it's illegal to be on their phone, somebody at the stoplight on their phone after it's turned green. There's where your sanctification gets tested, isn't it? When we ask the question, do we want to wait, would this be your testimony? Many in Christianity today refer to the return of Christ as a non-essential doctrine that is divisive. Well, we have different opinions. It's confusing. It's difficult for us to navigate. Beloved, these believers are called upon by Paul because they anticipated the return of Christ. They looked for Christ's imminent return. They believed that Christ could come in that moment, and so they were prepared. They were ready. They were serving and waiting with expectancy. They were active in the process of doing it, and Paul isn't commanding them to do it. He's not saying, be active in your waiting. He is praising God that they were active in their waiting. You and I should be commanded to wait with expectancy. But we have gotten into this, and we've allowed theologians to tell us that eschatology, that is the doctrine of end times, is too difficult for us to navigate. And I would say, baloney. The Thessalonians got it. They understood it, and they had only been believers for a few months. We should understand it as well. And we should have a great expectation for Christ's return. Waiting and serving are two activities of the church in Thessalonica. And they go hand in hand. They fit together like a hand and a glove. There are limits to what we can and will do. Beloved, you and I will not bring about a utopia. Have you caught on to that? There's theological circles within Christendom that believe, they won't say it this way, but they believe that we will bring about a utopia and then Christ will return. That is not what is going to take place. Christ's return is imminent and praise God that it is because you and I would continue to mess it up. Laws passed are certainly not doing what we had designed for them to do. Great ambitions, great in intentions all fail because you and I are finite and faulty, sinful creatures. We're not going to usher in the kingdom of Christ. That is Christ's work to do. And we wait in great anticipation and we long to meet Christ in the air. And so was true of the Thessalonian believers. So true that every chapter of this book, Paul is going to come back to this theme. He's going to return to the second coming of Christ. He's going to return to what Christ will do for us who are believers. But on the other hand, while we are busy serving, we recognize, or we're busy waiting rather, we recognize that we do not wait in idleness. We do not sit back on our laurels and say, well, I hope it's today. Our hope for today is that we're driven to reach those who are lost today because tomorrow may be too late. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but most chiefly among them is Christ could return right now. 
We say, and we often do in evangelistic circles, we say, well, you might die in an accident. As bad as that is, you might die in an accident. That's, that's true. But just as true and more imminently, Christ could return. Do we live in service as if Christ is coming to get us right now? The Thessalonian believers did. Say, well, that's too hard, Pastor. You don't understand. I understand. Paul says the Thessalonians were doing it. They were living it out. And it is because they were living it out that their reputation, their testimony, had gone from Macedonia to Achaia and to everywhere that Paul traveled, he heard about the Thessalonian believers. May that be true of us. There is work to be done, proclaiming the gospel and serving the Lord. And we do that while we're waiting and while we're serving. Working and waiting belong together. In combination, they will deliver us both from the presumption, which thinks that we can do everything, and from the pessimism, which thinks that we can do nothing, says one author. Isn't that a, a wonderful place to be? I'm not a pessimist by nature, but I, when I get pessimistic about something, then I don't, that's not an encouraging thing. I'm also not one who is often given to presumption. I'm a doer. I want to get things done. And it is a good place when both of those come hand in hand together. It is a bad place when we've allowed one to outrule the other. And we just sit back, well, I've done my time. I've served in the church. I'm just waiting for Christ's return. Let us be serving and waiting. Because the one we're waiting for is worthy of the wait. He's worthy of the wait. Scripture says this, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. He's worthy of the wait. The Greek word translated wait is used only here in the entire New Testament. It's unique to this text. It's exclusive in this sense. And it is the thought of anticipation or expectation that is associated with it that Paul is drawing out. This is what makes the Christian life worth living. Not because we're expecting uh, some pagan idol, some dead false god to do something for us. But that we are waiting for the one who has been risen from the dead to redeem and to seal, and to bring all of that to fruition. We're waiting for Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our salvation. We're waiting for Christ, whom, interestingly enough, Paul calls out and says, the Father raised from the dead. Jesus, we know, and as we study theology and we understand the Trinity and the work of the Trinity and the resurrection of Christ, all three members of the triune God were involved in the resurrection of Christ, and all three are attributed to having done that work. And Paul now says, you have turned to God because God raised Jesus from the dead. You have turned to Him because our faith and trust is in Christ alone for salvation. 
This is the expectation. This is what makes the Christian life worth living is that our hope is not grounded in that which is false and dead. But our hope is grounded in the living and true God who raised Christ from the dead. That's where your hope is found. Beloved, do you live in light of that truth? Do you live that out on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis? If you're living by expectancy and you're living by serving, that is what you're doing. We're not adding to. We're not taking away. We're living in light of the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we see part of the reason why we do so here at the end. Verse 10, it says, verse 10 says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus. It is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there are those who say that the wrath of God is what Paul is speaking about in Romans 5, 9. That we are those who are saved from the wrath of God. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve it to be cast upon us in our sinful state. And we deserve to be those who are the recipients because we have violated His holiness. We violated His justice. We violated everything that it was to be created in the image of God. So we deserve the wrath of God. But that's not what Paul is speaking about in 1 Thessalonians 1. And it's not what Paul is speaking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, which Mike read for us a few moments ago. The wrath that Paul is speaking of in this context is the judgment to come before the kingdom comes. Jesus would refer to this judgment. He would refer to this time, this period of wrath in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. Matthew 24 and Luke 24. Christ would speak of a time of great wrath And not only would Christ speak of it in Matthew and in Luke's Gospels, but Daniel would prophesy it. And so going all the way back to the prophet Daniel, there has been a promised time, a promised period of judgment to come upon. And it is interesting in the sense of our understanding of Scripture and dispensationalism that every dispensation ends in the judgment of God for the failure of the, of mankind to adhere to what God has called us to do. And here we have it. It follows the same pattern we've seen as we take Scripture in a literal, historical, grammatical approach. We take it for what it says, and the Scripture here says that those, that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're going to build upon this great truth. It's not as difficult as theologians and scholars want to make it today. Pretty clear, pretty cut and dry. It's only difficult if you try to do mental gymnastics with it. Uh, It doesn't twist and contort very easily. But Paul is very clear that there is a period of time which you and I will not only be saved from the wrath of God, which is for eternity, but there is a period of time that is the judgment to come where you who know Christ as Savior will be set free from the wrath of God poured out in the bold judgments Specific, all, the, all of the judgments of the tribulation, but specifically the bold judgments. The great wrath of God descends upon a rebellious creation. That is literal. That will happen. The Scriptures testify to it. And so what do we as believers are to do in this moment? We're to live with expectic, expectation. 
that one day very soon Christ will meet us in the clouds, which Paul will complete by the time we're done, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll see all of those pieces. That's why we're waiting for it to get into that study. But we are anxiously anticipating the day that the bridegroom will come for his bride, the church. Beloved, let us live in light of these great truths. Let us not forsake them and cast them off as unimportant because there are two great important statements that Paul makes about the Thessalonian church that you and I should implement in our application of this text. Let us be those who serve as bond slaves of Christ and wait with a diligent expectancy that Christ is coming very soon. And when he comes, it will be as a bridegroom for his bride to welcome us to the marriage supper of the Lamb in a beautiful ceremony, and we'll get into that when we get into 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, where we have been moved from here to presence with our Savior, saved from the wrath that will be poured out upon this wicked earth. And by that I mean the people who are upon it, those who have faithfully and diligently rejected the things of the Lord. Let us be those who are different. Two points of application. Serve and wait. Be active in both. Looking forward to the day that Christ is coming, to the moment that Christ returns, and actively and diligently doing everything to be ready for it. Don't delay. Let me close our time in a word of prayer as our music team comes forward. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for the time we could spend in your word over these last few moments, we praise you that you have given to us great clarity in the example of the Thessalonian church. Lord, I praise you that as we think of the songs that we're about to sing and we take great joy in the truths that are in them, that you would give to us an eye and a mind for obedience. That would be those who serve well, serving in the church well serving and fulfilling the Great Commission well, that we'd be committed and captivated by our Savior. And then, may we be so committed and captivated that we wait with an eagerness that is filled with anticipation as a young child getting a piece of candy, far greater joy when we receive what we have been longing for. Lord, we praise you that this is ours who know you as Savior, but we are aware that there may be those in our midst or in our hearing that do not yet know Christ as Savior. We pray that your Spirit would be convicting their hearts, that they would understand what it is that Christ has done for them when he, as a sinful, sinless, perfect Lamb of God, would take the place for sinners such as us. Lord, we praise you that Christ then not only died, but rose again, victorious over sin and death, giving us victory over sin and death if we will simply take the gift that is offered and open it. Help us to understand that we do that by simply turning, recognizing the path that we're on is the wrong path, repenting and accepting what Christ has done. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the work that Christ has done for us, the spirit that has convicted us of those things, who, those of us who know you as Savior. We pray now that our voices would be united as we exalt your virtues and your wonder in our continued praise as we lift our voices together in unison. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.